this fourth quarter to create a gap. Breeze hesitates for Michael Thomas. And it's Jumbo. He caught it! And he fell in the end zone for a touchdown, Saints! What's up, Dazer? Yo. You're making a lot of noise over there. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm moving. I'm moving. I'm moving. I hope this is better. We're trying to play a highlight, get an intro going, and I hear you making noise. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Tell me. It is Season 6, Episode 31 of the Sportscasters, November 10th, 2016. A new era of the Sportscasters starts tonight. Don is not here. Don is in the office this week. Uh, working on the massive SoundCloud upload project. I just looked. He's up to season five, I think. So he's wow. just about got all the episodes uploaded. I said, you're not needed here today. You're needed there. We need to get all those uploaded. And tonight's episode will be the first of the SoundCloud era. Our SoundCloud is www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. Basically the same as the website was, sports-casters.com. That's still up. It'll be there for... It'll serve the same purpose. You can still be able to click to the link, and it'll go direct you back to the SoundCloud page now. And we'll update iTunes and Stitcher and all those things manually, so if you have those, you don't have to change anything. Uh, the one thing that's going to take a bit yet is to add all the text to the files. I mean, it's a lot of episodes, so we have to go back and put each description in and name every episode and all that. But the first How many do you have in total? I don't even know. I mean... The, Season one was fifty-five episodes. Yeah, um, and there—I don't think we had any less than like thirty-five in two thousand thirteen when I was sick. Maybe. Yeah, kind of crazy how long this has been going. You know. Yeah. What is it? Cam Newton. Yeah. So, so cheers to that, man. Cam Newton was uh, playing at Auburn when we started. He had just won the national championship there the day before. <laughs> That's crazy! Wow. That's kind of a cool thing to like have it associated with. Yeah, I always think easy of that. memory. Yeah. yeah. It was the day after Oregon and uh, Oregon and uh, Auburn, and our first guest was Jeff Passan, who was promoting his book Death of the BCS, which has since died. <laughs> Correct. <So. laughs> All right, we have busy show today. We have a book club update. Anthony, I'll do one last thing later. Uh, also, guest today we have SL Price, uh, the author of. Playing Through the Whistle, Steal Football in an American Town, a book my grandpa says he would have paid $100 for. Uh, also, he said that? Yes. He said he would have wow, given Wow, what a beauty. He would, have yeah. given, he would have given me 100 <laughs> for it. So I told him, I said, he, well, if you want the author's you know, PayPal, I'm sure he'll take the 100 He didn't want wow. it. Wow. Yeah, I can't. He like buys his books from like Anvets. So for him to say he'd spend $100 on a book is like saying he'll buy a Ferrari. Yeah, I was telling uh, I was telling SL Price how he's read like ten thousand books, and I don't think I've heard of any of them. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge that's a huge endorsement coming uh, from if Grandpa can even get him to say something like that. No doubt. Yep. Also on the show today is Rick Tellender, the guest editor of the two thousand and six Best American Sports Writing Series and uh, columnist from the Chicago Sun Times. Uh, we talked to him obviously a little bit about the Cubs, but mostly about the twenty sixteen Best American Sports Writing. And uh, so we'll get to those interviews, but first, 
Anthony and I are going to do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. On the count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right. So the Bills got hosed at a Monday night game. Your thoughts? Uh, I guess it's business per usual. I don't know. It's just next thing I know we're four and five. That, that happened quickly. But um, uh, I, I didn't really get to see a lot of the game. I was at Temple of the Dog at Madison Square Garden, as you know. But I got back with like five minutes left in the fourth. I actually took the, the Bills' money line, so I was just happy to like get back and it not be a blowout. So, But you and you and brother Greggy were, were texting me. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that play at halftime was just, like, I, I don't know what they are watching. Like, that is such, a, like, a, a bad, like, goof by the refs. They took like, so, they took so much time to talk about it and come to that conclusion too, which just made it even worse. Which I don't, I, yeah. So I, I don't know that part because I, mean, I wasn't watching it. But we can't like, say that that happens much. Obviously, it was a, a strange circumstance. It's not the same as like them blowing a holding or something they call all the time. It obviously was a strange play. He came in unevaded to the kicker. They didn't blow the whistle, even though they said they blew the whistle. But if you listen to it, they didn't. And he hits the kicker. The kicker end up, ends up hurt. Just he's gonna get out of the play. They make him leave the play because he's hurt just Ugh. just long enough for the trainer to come out. Um, and it was just so. Then there was a spike, which I guess they weren't even supposed to allow that. That should have been intentional grounding, maybe. Just all kinds of wackiness, and it ends up that the Bills are the one who were on the short end of the stick. And then I was a little fired up at the end of the game that maybe Richard Sherman did something illegal, but it turns out that was a legal play. And I understood the explanation when. Is it because he was out of? Yeah. He was technically a runner. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I wasn't that rattled about that play because I think Gruden kind of or someone right after the game said it right away and it made sense to me. I don't know if it was like on the broadcast or maybe in on Sports Center, but so like I wasn't that rattled about that. But like I know you can always say like look back and like that would have changed the game and and usually if like, that's not the case because you know who knows how the game would have gone from that point on. But, like, a field goal at the end of the half, like, it's pretty safe to say, like, those three points, you know, like, going into the locker room and coming up, like, the next play would have, like, not been changed by that field goal. So, like, those three points you can, like, pretty much put on the board. And, like, I feel like the second half wouldn't have been played differently and the Bills would have kicked the field goal to win. So, like, that, well, that those three points at the end of the half, you know, kind of hurt. The field goal would have tied, right? So they lost by six? They lost by five, oh, I, I thought, thought. I thought it was six. You could be right. Um, yeah. No, it was six thirty-one twenty-five. Oh, all right. We'll tie. So yeah, they would have tied it. And they played well, I thought though. That's what I heard. Yeah. Last I mean, time you were here, that's they a were, tough place to play, right? Last time you were here, they were two or four and two. They're four and five, but they're still coming off their best game of the three. And you got to get to ten. I don't think it matters how you get to ten. You just try to win ten and see where you are. So. You know. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Hopefully the bye week. I mean, it was kind of cool you hear Rex saying, like, he really told them just to, like, kind of sell out and leave it all out there going to the bye week. And you, they listen. So yeah. it's kinda, I think that's encouraging. Yeah, he's got the room. They did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Raiders won the huge game against the Broncos, the 7-2 versus the 6-2. Raiders, cool my team. Yeah, they're a cool team. It'll be interesting. Tonight, we got to hurry up and get this done so we can watch 4-4 four and four Ravens versus 0-9 Browns. Yeah, color rush, baby. <laughs>
<laughs> it's, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous, and it's just like I feel bad for the NFL because they're getting killed about the ratings and all that, and like these games just consistently pop up, and they're just awful matchups. Which I, I know they said it before the year, but like wow, like it's just I guess there's like a bad, it's just bad timing for them where they're getting killed in the media about the ratings, and then you know they got Cleveland Baltimore on a Thursday night. It's just like geez. Uh, $9,000 fine for Sherman on the hit on Carpenter, and no discipline for the refs, according to a source. Uh, I heard they got points taken? That happens no matter what. They're, they're always... Okay. They're, they're well, so what do you, how do you discipline a ref? <laughs> like, suspend him? You know, but, Walt, Walt I, Anderson's officiating crew is not disciplined by the NFL for a series of missteps, a uh, source told Ed Werder. The crew members were evaluated under the standard process that holds them accountable for every call in each game. Those okay. they make and those okay. they don't. A source said no additional discipline was given, meaning the two mistakes cited by a senior vice president officiating Dean Blandano after the game resulted in the crew being downgraded accordingly. Gotcha. So, well, nine grand for Sherman. That's like you know me buying a coffee in the morning. So at least they taught him a lesson. Speaking of lessons, the league is about to teach Kenny Vaccaro a lesson, a four-game suspension for testing positive for Adderall. I couldn't be more disappointed in Kenny Vaccaro. Uh, this is a guy. This is a guy who, a couple weeks ago, after a win, the coaches wanted to give the team off the day off, and Kenny Vaccaro said, "No, the defense wasn't good enough. Defense doesn't get the day off. The defense has to come in and learn and watch film. We're not taking the day off." You know, he tries to be a leader, a vocal guy. He plays like a borderline sociopath or scumbag on the field. If he didn't play for the Saints, he would probably be one of my most hated players in the league, and he probably is anyway. And, you know, this is just what you get for drafting a Texas player in the first round. So what we got when we drafted Ricky Williams in the first round from Texas, and now Kenny Vaccaro, a drug abuser. So I'm not happy. Not happy with Kenny Vaccaro at all. Especially when everything's going right for the team. Dalvin Bro came back last week. You know, they're one of the hottest teams in the league. They're four of the last five. And they have a big game against the Broncos, which I guess Vaccaro is going to be able to play in because... He's going to peel, right? He's, well, he's waiting for Or he's got another sample. test or yeah. something. Yeah, but then they have to play four days later against the Panthers on the road, and that'll be the game he has to sit out. So it's like, great. Really leaving us shorthanded on our short week. So Right, right. That's yeah, it's a tough break. Awful, awful, awful decision by Kenny Vaccaro. Time to grow up there, Kenny. You think you're such a tough guy and such a leader, uh, you can't be failing drug tests. All right, uh, UFC 205 is at Madison Square Garden this weekend. Is there any buzz in the city? Um, I think, you know, there's a little bit different kind of buzz right now, obviously, as you can imagine. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the press conferences, I've seen some videos about that. So that, that I think that's what gets most of these people fired up once they start seeing McGregor, you know, throwing shit from the podium and just saying ridiculous stuff. So that, like, I, I, you know, on Twitter and all that, I've seen some more buzz. But you see some signs around. Um, the city, but it's a little preoccupied with you know all the Trump rallies and whatnot. But yeah, I think it'll be cool. I, I, I mean, the Garden is just a sweet place to see anything, so I'm sure there will be uh, you know a lot of buzz that night for sure. Yeah, you mentioned the the press conference today has some quotes from Conor McGregor. <laughs> yeah, these are really great. He is uh, headlining the show, obviously against Eddie Alvarez, um, and he says, "I run New York City." He bully complained. <laughs> I'm a fucking pimp. Uh, he, he was also really late to the press conference. Uh, he said, sorry I'm late. I just don't give a fuck. I operate on my time. I operate on my own time, and I'm running early on my time. 
So Dana White says, no, it doesn't piss me off. This is fighting, man. A wacky, crazy, crazy business. I'm in such a good mood for this event. It is what it is. Uh, McGregor also said that he predicts that he rearranges his face. He's too easily hit. Um, Didn't he say that last time that he lost? Like, coming off a lot. Like, this is crazy. No, he's saying all this shit. He won coming his, off a loss. He won his last fight. Oh. He avenged the loss. His last fight. Oh, okay. His last but fight. But still, but still, like, this this guy, like, I, I mean, I'm not the biggest. I watched the one fight he lost, so that's probably why I thought that was the last. But, like, I'm not the biggest UFC guy. But, like, he can't. He, like, kind of, like, tries to be Mayweather, and, like, Mayweather can. I don't know. I just feel like someone being undefeated carries way more. Like, this guy's just such a show, right? Like, Well, here's the thing about UFC that I've always said. It's it's, it's wrestling, except for they're doing shoot fights. I mean, it's no right. different from what the WWE does except for the actual fight. One is a shoot and one is a work. I mean, otherwise, they're always working. I mean, these guys are always on. Yeah. He's, you know, Conor McGregor is cutting a promo today. He's not giving a real press conference. He's not right, being a genuine right. person. He's being a character. And he's trying to sell fights, and he's doing everything that happens on the WWE, which is fine, you know. But obviously, they would never want to admit that, you know. They always try to say that there's something different because their fights are real, and of course, that is a big difference. CM Punk found out just how different it is, but you know, look at everything else surrounding the bout before and after that happens is the same. Uh, but it yeah. is it is about yeah, time. I guess it's I'm, in just, New York. I'm just more of a boxer guy, but I, I get it. I mean, I watched that one pay per view, and it was amazing that when he lost that guy, but yeah, I mean, he definitely polarizes a lot of people and people are into it. It's a tough sport to be a big mouth in because you're going to you get your fights. ass kicked like that yeah. one shot. Yeah. You're going to lose fights. I mean, nobody's undefeated. Everyone loses fights. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just kind of, I, I really love like the undefeated fighter for some reason. I think it's so cool. Vince McMahon said that the reason he never thought it was a big threat was because they wouldn't be able to build stars because their stars would lose. And it's genius. It's happened. It, genius. it happened. Yeah. It happened with Ronda Rousey, and she was the biggest star they had. And then she got her face broken, and she's run away for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I guess she's going to show her face at the end of the year and fight. But it's a big fight. If she doesn't win that fight, the mystique of Ronda Rousey, if it's left at all, is completely gone. Um. So I don't know. I thought I'd mention that because it's kind of cool. It does belong in New York City. It's ridiculous that it hasn't been in New York for so long. I'm glad they finally got rid of that political nonsense and uh, UFC 205. Uh, last thing for three things today. So a couple hockey notes. Uh, Sergey Makarov is going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, not a really like huge class this year. Uh, no like you know crazy names headlining. And when you have a you know like a Russian guy like that as basically the best player going in. Um. <laughs> But uh, who else is going in? Lindros is going in this year. Do you have the list? Yeah, I was just going to ask you. I I, actually, I didn't even see any of this. Is, is it Lindros? It sounds about right, right? I feel like he's his time is about now, I yeah. would feel like. And it's ish- interesting because on the Lonely Under the Rink podcast this week, uh, we were talking to Darren McCarty from, um, from the Red Wings, and we were talking about the Scott Stevens hit on Lindros. And how, you know, that wouldn't be a legal hit anymore because the primary contact uh, was the head. It sure was. <laughs> and um, I couldn't believe how against it McCarty was. Against the hit? Yeah, he was totally against 
the hit being illegal. He thinks that should be a legal hit. Oh, the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that guy is an animal, so I'm not surprised with that answer at all. I mean, that guy played in kind of like the Wild West of times, really, at least from what I can, you know, in my my generation, I guess. But, like, watching McCarty in those games of the Avalanche, I will never forget that. And, like, I don't think there'll ever be something like that again. So, no, I'm not surprised he thinks that's a clean hit because he's done a lot dirtier shit than that. Yeah, it is a bummer that it shortened Lindros' career you know, it was late the hit, not extremely late, but late, and obviously the primary contact with the head. Uh, so he would have missed. I would, I bet he would. If it was now, he might have been suspended the whole Stanley Cup final, uh, if not two to yeah. four, four no, games. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that for sure. I mean, that hit was that. egregious. <laughs> um, Patrick Lane is unbelievable, huh? Leads the league he, with 11 goals. Two hat-tricks I, I already. I can't remember seeing a snapshot that good, honestly. Have you seen? How quick it goes. Yeah, Sackick. I mean, Sackick comes to mind. Right, you know? right. But, I mean, for a kid that, that young, I mean, that's a, he's got a crazy, crazy good shot. So, I'm not surprised. I mean, he's going to score a ton of goals. I'm not sure on the playmaking side. I'm not sure. I mean, I like, does he have a ton of assists? I mean, or does he have a ton of goals? But, like, I don't know. You know, if he can develop that part of his game, he can win a lot of scoring titles. And these guys are going to have slumps. McDavid's been in a pretty big slump. He kind of busted out in that Penguins game. He had three assists, I guess. But he's a huge minus. He had five, a five-game stretch where he only had two assists and was a minus seven. And uh, Matthews is obviously in a slump. Um, so those things happen, and that's why I was so against McDavid being a Rookie of the Year candidate last year, just because you ha- when you play a full NHL season, especially at that age, there's going to be slumps. Here's the uh, Hall of Fame class. It is Pat Quinn, Eric Lindros, Sergei Makarov, uh, Raji Vashan uh, as the goalie. So only four people going. Uh, Pat Quinn was the Leafs coach, right? With Sundin and those guys that that era. Yeah, and he also coached the '94 Canucks. That the Canucks the team, yeah. yeah. So. Okay, yeah, definitely a, a Hall of Famer. Yep. No, no just while we're on it, real quick. No, who was really like impressed me watching when you're talking about McDavid is Nugent Hopkins. Have you seen him at all? Yeah, yeah. He is like he's playing like with so much weight off his shoulder. I feel like I don't know. I've just been supremely impressed by his speed and him with the puck. He just looks like a completely different player now. He's doing the smart thing too and putting his stick down and going to the net. You know, right? Yeah, he's totally. Night. You can tell he's become more of a pro, and he's always had the talent, obviously. But he's he's probably been the player that's impressed me the most so far this season of the games I've watched. All right. That's it for three things. I think what we're going to do is we'll take a break. We'll go talk to Rick Tallender from the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, we'll come back for a book club update. Then we'll do SL Price. And then Anthony and I will finish the show with one last thing. All right, our next guest is from Peoria, Illinois, and is a graduate of Northwestern, where he was a football player. Uh, He was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated before leaving the magazine to uh, work at the Chicago Sun-Times. He was the editor of the 2016 Best American Sports Writing Series, and he's making his first appearance on the show today. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to Rick Tellender. What's going on, Rick? It's all good. Everything's good. Great to uh, great to be chatting. 
I mean, I heard you were no uh, Trevor Simeon, but you were quite the player at Northwestern, they tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Trevor Simeon, you know, he's better in the pros than he was in college, which is kind of amazing to me. But, yeah, I was I was amazingly awesome. See, nobody's alive to even remember, so you can say <laughs> anything you want to. <laughs> it's sort of like the uh, <laughs> it's like the Cubs fans who saw him win the World Series. That there, there's only right. so few of them left, so the the, the lure. Uh, but, <laughs> we were trying to set this up earlier, uh, earlier in the fall, and it was like, well, the Cubs have taken over my life, and I got to ask you, as someone, you know, in Buffalo here, I had no dog in the fight. I got to just sit back and enjoy the playoffs, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. What was the ride like as someone covering the team and uh, following it all the way through the epic Game 7 of the World Series? Well, it was amazing, and it was uh, astounding. I, it still hasn't really processed for me because I never expected it. I, I just uh, had developed a hard shell over all these years. I've never seen them win. Everybody had. I mean, you can't get your heart broken again and again. And even though I'm a, a sports writer, I still... Uh, you know, not really a fan, but you want to, it's no fun to watch a team endlessly get close and not make it. And I actually feel for uh, for Cleveland, too. I, I think that I would have loved to see them win this World Series, too, because that's a great city. There's no acrimony. There's no um, anger in this World Series. There's no payback. There's nothing like that. It was two teams that had a lot of respect for each other. But to actually be on the... Uh, you know, the train ride, if you will, from the, the whole get-go, from the end of the season in early October all the way through until whenever it ended. I, don't even, I didn't even know what day it was, what month, anything. But it was a month at, of travel and being at every single game with the Cubs. And to end up in a seventh game like that, extra innings with a rain delay, and then come back and finally win, uh, it was just astounding. One thing for us as journalists, though, writers particularly, not, not radio or broadcast guys, we have deadlines. Right. And these baseball games just blow our deadlines. You know, the days of a two-hour and 15-minute game are long gone. These are all four hours. And, and one of them, an extra inning one for the Cubs back with, uh, I don't know, it must have been the Dodgers. Uh, it lasted, I think, five hours and eight minutes. You'll never see that in football or basketball. You know, you're not going to see a 15 overtime basketball game. And football just ends after a while. But baseball is indeterminate. And I tell you, in that seventh game, when the Indians came back and tied it up, hey, and it was already, it, it was already late, and we're like, oh no! <laughs> I mean, the groans and the swearing in the press box were astounding. And that's when you want to be Jeff Passan sitting down there and knowing that Yahoo.com or whatever is always is always uh, ready for his article. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, you want to be online right. where it doesn't matter. But if you got print and they have deadlines that this print, if you don't get it in now, it's not going to be in the paper. And I actually wrote my first column for the Sun-Times. Remember, this is the seventh game of the World Series for one team that hasn't won the World Series since 1948, and another one that hasn't won it since 1908. So all that matters is who is the winner. And my first column that was in the paper doesn't. Even, I don't even know who the winner is. So that's like, oh man, there's some really uh, dandy tap dancing when you're doing stuff like that. One of my favorite things about the series, as a big Pearl Jam fan, was every day 
turning the game on and playing Where's Eddie and trying to find a Mr. Vetter in the stands. And, of course, uh, Bill Murray was there and, uh, geez, the guy from Smashing Pumpkins and all kinds of celebrity. Yeah, Billy Corgan. Billy Corgan. Was there, yep. Yeah, all kinds of celebrity uh, Cubs fans. Do you have any cool uh, stories of celebrities celebrating the, the World Series that you bumped into while covering the team? Well, I, I bumped into all three of those guys. I know all three of them. I got a nice photo of me and Eddie. Eddie uh, is just, you know, a nutcase fan. And uh, when he sang the, the seventh inning stretch, when he did take me out to the ball game, and then he went over and hugged Pat Hughes, the announcer. I mean, he was he was in a frenzy that was astounding. And then I talked to Billy Corgan. He he drove in from Chicago to Cleveland on the day of the seventh game. And it, I've known him for a long time. He was there when when uh, Harry Carey's uh, blew up the Bartman ball. You know, Billy was yeah. there. And I knew him when I was on the sports writers on TV. And he's, he used to live very close to Wrigley Field and was truly a fan. So, And I said, what was it like driving in? And I said, what, you just decided to get tickets? And he said, yep. Went on StubHub. A lot of Cleveland fans were dumping their tickets because, you know, if they could make $1,000 on a ticket that they just had for you know, a hundred bucks, a lot of them were doing it. So he said, it looked like a, um, a migration from Chicago, you know, like a plague of locusts driving east towards Cleveland, <laughs> which is about 350 miles. Yeah. And uh, it just came in and then they just filled progressive field. So he was there. He was having a great time. Bill Murray also known forever because he used to live, well, he's from the North side of Chicago in Wilmette and he used to live, in a dorm for a while, for a summer at Northwestern, uh, right after I graduated, and we used to play softball together. This was back when he was at Second City. So everybody knew Bill, and uh, he was out of his mind, too. And I, I was talking to him after the game, and I said, you know, I don't know how to feel. And he said, I don't either. He said, I don't want to, but I don't want to wreck anything or burn anything down. <laughs> I just don't feel like doing that. I, I feel just ecstatic, and that was kind of funny, too. So all those guys... Yeah, they're always there. They've been Cub fans for years and years and years, so they deserve to be part of the celebration. Yeah, uh, comedian Craig Gass, if you you may have seen this, this is for the listeners as well. He did post a video on Facebook of uh, the final out, and he was basically right in between Eddie Vedder and Billy Corgan. So, like, that's where it was his vantage point, and Murray was right next to him. It's really a beautiful video. Uh, it's really cool to see uh, people that we look at as celebrities really have a really human moment. Um, so that's a great video. Uh, if you can find that on Facebook for the listeners, or if you haven't seen it yourself, Rick, uh, Oh, did I want to do You know, at this point now, I mean, it was 11 championships before the Cubs since 1985 for the city of Chicago. You know, you got the, the, the bulls and all, mm, yeah. all, all of their championships. You got, you know, the bears in 85, obviously is now the biggest drought, I guess, in the city. Uh, the Blackhawks are going through the golden age of Blackhawks hockey right now with Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. Uh, I got to say, I was rooting for Chicago this time, but that's pro- that's probably it. Uh, I'm probably going to have <laughs> – that's probably going to be the end for me in, uh, in Chicago as a, a, someone who lives in Buffalo and uh, has lived in a city who's never celebrated a championship. Uh, I think I, I'm just about yeah, – yeah. yeah. Hey, listen, I don't blame you. That's okay. <laughs> Forget Chicago. Michael Jordan, they won six titles. Yep. Don't forget the White Sox won in yep. 2005. So, yeah, don't feel sorry for anybody in Chicago at all ever again. And, you know, Jim Kelly is a good friend of mine. I was at every one of those four Buffalo Super Bowls. 
that, you know, it takes just great skill to get there. And I know Marv Levy pretty well. You know, I've known Marv forever. And it's just heartbreaking, just, just heartbreaking. I remember the Buffalo Braves were the basketball team there. So, yeah. you know, Buffalo deserves a, a Super Bowl really badly. Just like Detroit, uh, the Lions do too, in my opinion. Marv and Le- the Browns. Marv Levy was also at Game Seven. I was a little bit worried for the for the Cubs when I seen him uh, pop up on TV. Uh, let's talk about the book, the Best American Sports Reading Series. It's a book that, since the podcast has been around, we've we've loved. Jane Levy was the editor of the year that we started, and she came on to talk about the book. And we've done it almost every year. Sometimes they get a get an editor who's just too too big for us, I guess. We can't track him down. You know, like I knew when I saw it was Mike Wilbon, I'm like, ah, geez, we're not getting him this year, you know. But uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, I know Mike. Mike is a good guy. Let me tell you a story about yeah. Mike real quick. You know he's sure. from Chicago. Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. people say, well, somebody's a nice guy. What does that mean? Well, it means they, you know, they, don't, they haven't seen him do anything awful. But this is at a Redskins game. This, I want to say this was Redskins-Bears game. I want to say it was uh, like six years ago, whatever. He was doing, you know, pardon the interruption, maybe five years ago. And uh, it was cold. I mean, it was colder than hell in, for being Washington. It was probably 20 degrees, and there was snow, big drifts of snow and ice everywhere. And the game, it was a night game. The game ended late. We all write. We do whatever we have to do. And then we're trying to get back to Washington, D.C., where we're staying because the Redskins play out in uh, somewhere, I don't know, one of the suburbs in Maryland or wherever it is. Uh, nice stadium and all, but so we go down. There's no cabs. There's nothing. And this is before Uber and all that stuff. And you call a cab line. You can't get a hold of anybody. It's now probably close to midnight. Maybe it was midnight. And there were maybe three or four of us wandering around. And one guy, Les Grobstein, says, hey, let's, let's walk. And I, I'm... I said, are you crazy? We'll die. I mean, you want to just walk until we found a cab. It never would have happened. So we're there, and Michael comes down from the press box down to the ground floor where we are, and you know, freezing, and uh, he says, you know, what are you guys doing? He said, well, we're all we're waiting for a cab or whatever. And he said, well, let's see if we can get a hold of one or something. We couldn't. So he says, what the hell? Get in, and I'll take you guys where you're going. He took every one of us to different hotels, and he lived back out towards where the stadium is. Mm-hmm. I want to say this was probably took him an extra hour of driving to do this because we're Chicago guys and whatever. Now, that's not something anybody's going to find out about. That's not something you write about. It's like one of those little things that coaches love when they see, you know, we talk about a player it doesn't show up in the stats. But that's the kind of guy Mike is. So, I mean, that's for real. That's him, genuinely. He's a good guy, okay? Yeah. He got that stamped and approved. <laughs> and I was really happy for him. I followed his journey through the playoffs with his appearances on the Tony Kornheiser podcast. And I was very pleased for him and his 90-year-old mother as well, as I was for most Cubs fans. Um, oh, yeah, huge. Yeah, when we talk about the best American sports writing, we're going to talk about picking the stories, and that's a big part of it. But... Sometimes we forget about the other duty you have as guest editor, and that's writing an introduction to the to the to the book. Glenn writes the forward, then 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 comes the introduction. When you opened up Microsoft Word or Pages or whatever, and we're looking at the blank white screen for that assignment, what what came to mind? Was it challenging? Was it exciting? Tell me about writing that introduction that you did. 
Oh, I knew I wanted to write about uh, the process of writing and where actual physical print is now because of the Internet, because of the change in technology from uh, people reading newspapers, from them reading magazines, to reading everything online, not everything, but a good part of it, to uh, the, the advent of blogs and of all kinds of uh, dot-com sites, to uh, trolling, to everything that has changed dramatically from the way writing used to be. And I wanted to celebrate people who still write stories that uh, where you utilize a lot of groundwork, where you use effort. You don't sit there and just pontificate because anybody can do that. You know, there's an old saying that's true. Um, uh, opinions are like, you know, blank, a, a, a part of the anatomy. Everybody's got one. And I read one time that 99% of all blogs are just opinion pieces because they're easy to do. It takes no effort, nothing. To criticize takes no effort to just write it. Uh, you, you know what you think about something. What takes, what is hard, is you go and do research, and that's what nobody wants to do. So if somebody went and did research, went out, found people, did something, had a scene, multiple scenes, that where you could sense how hard uh, what they did was, instead of just sitting there with their feet up in their uh, you know in their underwear and just saying I hate this I hate that and this is what I think about that anybody can do that anybody mm. and I'm a, a columnist and that's what I do right you know <laughs> but I've earned my right to do that because I've written hundreds of stories uh, journalistic stories for both Sports Illustrated and ESPN the magazine long ones as long as ten thousand words and things where you're on the road for day after day and you're you're you know you're tracking people down you're doing research in libraries all those kinds of things. So that's what I wanted to write about. I knew I wanted to say that I'm rewarding those people. Uh, and so I wrote a lot about where the printed word is on what we call hard copy. Now, I call it paper, so even known as paper. Where we are with that as opposed to where we are with things that are just electronically manufactured and distributed. And this is, after all, a book, something that you hold in your hands. I wanted it to explain to people why I feel that's important why I think that words themselves are hardwired uh, to be into our brain, that we have a part of our brain that has evolved to actually translate symbols, letters, into words, into sentences, into paragraphs, into sense, and into ultimately the truth. I think that's very important. Uh, I really do. We, we can get into the anthropology of humans and how reading actually became a part of who we are. I think it's necessary. We haven't evolved to the point where we don't need to read. Maybe we will someday. Computers will read for us. But uh, right now, that's not the case. So uh, I wanted to do that, and I wanted to explain, of course, the process of um, uh, the stories that I selected. Why did I pick them? Uh, I, I couldn't explain every one of them. I think there were, t I'm not sure the exact number, 25 to 28, 30, somewhere in that number of stories. And you know, I also wanted to explain the ones that I excluded, and those were, you know, I, I didn't take newspaper columns. I think I might have taken one, even though uh, that's nothing against newspaper columns, but this is more to salute longer-form writing, which we used to call magazine writing, and now it can just be known as long-form. And some of these were from dot-com. Some were, I, uh, I, well, the other thing I wanted to explain was I have no idea when I get these stories came from Glenn Stout, the series editor, the guy who right. winnows all the stories that are submitted to him. 
down to about 100. I want to say there's something like 80 to 100 stories that I got. So you figure some of these are 3,000 words long, some are 1,000 words long. At any rate, that's a lot of reading. You know, that's, that's uh, say, 150,000 words of reading somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, and you want to do it carefully. I read them all. I, I wanted to be very careful. I actually included a couple stories that I had read during the year. I can't remember which ones they were, but that I, which I wanted in there. I just knew that they were, they were great. So uh, I had no names. I had no affiliations. I had no magazine titles, newspaper titles, nothing. When I got the stories, the title was there, but that's it. And then I read the story and judged them accordingly. So I wanted the people to know what my prejudices were uh, as far as what I was selecting, which ones I was not selecting. I was not going to take a lot of real topical news stories, like World Series, you know, seven-game stories. I don't want one of those. I might, If I were doing it this year, I might look at a story about the Cubs in general, but there are thousands of Game 7 stories. Uh, so I ruled those out, kind of, those, those kind of news stories. Nothing against them, but they're, they're not for this kind of right. no anthology. So that was, that was pretty much what I decided to do in that uh, when I wrote the introduction. Now, one of your most famous works, and I went back and, and read it, was uh, in the in the 80s. You wrote a long-form piece on the University of Miami and Oklahoma and some other colleges that uh, were plagued by scandal. And I was reading through, I think mostly of Miami one that I was able to find online. Um, and there's some long-form stuff from Sports Illustrated in this piece. I think there's a John Wertheim piece uh, that uh, on heroin um, that made the thing yep. there's a Chris yep. Ballard SI piece uh, just a couple years ago when we did this interview it was the first time a guest editor had presented uh, a book without any Sports Illustrated in it uh, as someone who wrote for Sports Illustrated in the 80s uh, and 90s very famously and uh, someone doing this editing now and reading all these pages what do you think about the state of Sports Illustrated in 2016 and its relevance and its quality and uh, what are your thoughts in general about SI I think it's in the same position that a lot of magazines are in. The competition is from everywhere and everything. It doesn't have the world to itself, which it, which it used to. To uh, You know, the means of production now are available to anybody, any writer. Just put it on the Internet. Boom, it's done. You don't have to set type. You don't have to uh, get ads. You don't have to distribute it. You don't have to do anything. So most of that is no good. An awful lot of it is no good, but some of it is terrific. And uh, you don't need offices. You don't need anything. So that kind of competition is overwhelming. That's just something that, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated is, is suffering with and struggling through. They still have terrific writers. I really believe that. But to write about a game, which we used to do all the time. We write about a big game. You know, nobody really wants you to read about that anymore. They've read so much about it and seen so much and analyzed it themselves that it's just, uh, it's old news. I mean, it's really old news. And if there is a scandal, uh, I think Sports Illustrated does that kind of thing still very well, well, where they put numerous people on the case and they go and get it. That's like the story about heroin. The reason I picked that one was uh, heroin and fentanyl and all those things, they are real, true issues right now in society. 
and not just with sports, certainly not with sports, but all the pain management that athletes go through. We've developed a lot of addicts, and we've de- developed a lot of real problems. We have uh, here in Chicago, there's uh, at least a death every day from, from heroin or fentanyl or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, heroin-like overdose. It used to be Oxycontin and, and Oxycodone. Now they clamped down on that a little bit, but that's made people go, when they're addicted, it makes them go to the street to find this stuff. Very, very bad. Really, really bad, terrible thing. And I thought that was just a terrific cautionary tale done in a way that Sports Illustrated can do something with a good writer, really good writer, with uh, really good workers, all that stuff, and make it, uh, you know, make it work. But beyond that, you know, advertising is fleeing print. I know that, for, you know, newspapers are in the same state. And you look at a Sports Illustrated, it's a very thin magazine, just like Rolling Stone and all these others. You basically get almost like a page of editorial work or journalistic work for every page of advertising. Right. So when the advertising goes down, there goes the writing. It, it just can't, there's no other way. You, they don't make it back from the uh, subscriptions or the sales you know, newsstand price. It makes, you know, quite a bit that way. But that's not enough. It's the ads that really make it work. So it's a huge transitional phase here as people try to go to the Internet. But then you think, okay, with Sports Illustrated, what do we have that nobody else has on the Internet? You know what you have as a magazine. you got the ability to print it and distribute it. But on the Internet, you know, there's that old, uh, that old New Yorker cartoon, and it's one dog talking to another, and he says, you know, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. And that's kind of true with anything on the internet. Nobody knows you're not sports illustrated. You, you, uh, somebody wants to go out and really do hard work as a journalist, as a kid, they can do it now and they can print it themselves. So that's where we find sports illustrated, uh, you know, right there. Photos. Everybody has a camera. I noted, uh, really noticed that this world series, every single person I saw, and I mean, every one of them, had a smartphone, a cell phone, something, right. and every one of them is filming and videotaping virtually everything that happens. So you start with that. You know, we at the the sometimes we uh, basically got rid of um, every single one of our photographers. I think we have two. We we, we fired twenty seven. You know, we don't need them anymore. It's sad. Every photo you want could be taken by a photojournalist or a citizen journalist. Or can I ask you something about like that? that. Can I ask you something about that you know? before we get too far? Can I ask you something about that? Uh, because What's that? Can I ask you something about that before we get too far? Oh, away? sure, sure, sure. Uh, it did. It was kind of a. I read a few different places some criticism of how much nicer the photography was on the other paper uh, for Game Seven of the World Series, and how the picture on the Sun Times was generic and didn't look very good, mm-hmm. and how you know that was maybe an example of uh, firing those photojournalists being a big mistake. Sure. Was that discussed after the fact? Um, has it changed well, your no, minds? Well, no, I don't have any editorial control of that, but I don't think there's any question. I know one of the photographers went to the Tribune from the Sun-Times, and his name is John Kim, and I've worked on stories with him. This guy's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. Right. You know, he is incredibly gifted and skilled, and I know that uh, the Tribune had some of his photos. There's other guys over there. I mean, they're just amazing. So, yeah, you lose out at some point. You just go to AP to get whatever they have to offer or, you know, who, uh, Getty or something like that. Sure, you lose out. But now the question is, can you afford to have them even if you lose out? 
that's the thing. I mean, look, newspapers are in real trouble. <laughs> I mean, real trouble. The stabs are half or a third or a quarter of what they were 40 years ago. That's just a fact. Right. You know, you've got a, you've got a, a you know, a podcast here. We're, we're, this is really nothing more than a, your own radio station. So if you can do this at no cost to have this, uh, how does a radio station compete? They got a, it's a real difficult time now in everything. And certainly, quality suffers when you just get rid of people. There's no question about that. When you were going through the articles that Glenn gives you, did you come across one that you're like, I know what this one is. I read this. This was the, you know, the whatever piece about. Yeah. 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 Yep. And I, I think, yeah, I think I did. I think a couple of them I did, but I, I, I think I remember reading this and I really liked it. But I would not be able to say, "Oh, I know who that author is." Right. Uh, even it, then, when it, then it was revealed to me, I said, "Yeah, yeah, okay, that's that guy." So, I think I had read Wright Thompson's about uh, Ted Williams' daughter. Uh, let's see, what's uh, trying to think of some of the other ones. There are many of them that uh, were. Bizarre. Oh, I think I had read um, the one about learning to dunk. Uh, I mean, teaching yourself to dunk. Um, got it, and uh, you know the guy's name. I forget it right now. But he, he did it for Sports Illustrated, and I just enjoyed the hell out of that. So when I saw it again, I was thinking, "Oh yeah, uh, I I love this story because it's just the effort that went into it. One entire year of trying to physically train yourself and do and agonize over all this stuff to something as stupid as having to learn to dunk when you're six foot one and you're a forty year old white guy." <laughs> you know, I just, it was hilarious. It was everything. And yeah, so I recognize that. I recognize Wright Thompson's, uh, boy, I don't know if there are any other ones. Yeah. I know when I first opened the book, that's one thing I always do is I look through and see, all right, do I remember reading any of these? And one that jumped out for me that I knew I read was the Patriot way. Um, the, uh, oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That was, uh, Seth Wickersham and, Don uh, yeah, Don Van Atta. Yeah. Yes, you're right. That was a very long one that I yes that I thought helped explain the underworkings. Tremendous amount of work went into that to uh, uh, talk about the NFL and where the NFL and the Patriots and Deflate Gate and you know how Bill Belichick, all this stuff going back. That had so much information in it that I was able to use that and not have to have you know forty stories about the NFL. Uh, yeah, that was terrific. That one was that was one of those investigative stories that I thought just really was amazing. You read that, you don't need to know much else about the NFL. Was Chris Ballard the writer of the other one you were talking about? Chris Bell for the uh, the basketball uh, one. The Ballard Ballard is in there, but no, he's not the dunking. Uh, God, I don't have the book in front of me. I wish I did. I would just look it up. Michael, wait, is Michael Michael oh, McKnight? God. Michael McKnight, learn to dunk. Yes, that's yeah. it. Michael McKnight. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> and I just, you know, I got to tell you, so many of these stories, I could have picked one. Another editor might have. It's not like the ones that were excluded were bad. A ton of good ones, and a lot depends on what mood you're in. Have you, you know, maybe I'm just sick of NBA stories. I had too many. I think I had 22 different sports represented in here. Uh, you know, including uh, billiards, including. Uh, you know, one on global warming, which I thought was really important, but the woman who who trekked to the North Pole with the you know Eskimos, just and she's a poet. I did that was in Harper's Magazine. I had never read anything like that, 
That one was astounding. I had one on, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the odd ones. Oh, God, the, the guy who walked the, um, uh, the Appalachian Trail, who is a criminal, and he just he hiked for five years on there, took up an identity as a hiker. Just fascinating. Incredible. Um, <laughs> uh, there were some that were very poignant. One uh, woman writing about, I think, writing about her dad and how fishing tied, you know, kind of brought them together. Um, let's see here. Uh, you know, one, by, by, again, by a woman. I didn't, some of these, you know, I, there was some criticism. Why didn't you have more female writers? Well, you don't know you the don't gender know. Yeah. effects of the person writing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless they specifically have somebody speaking to them or they say she or I am a woman or something like that. And this one was, she was a rower, uh, a collegiate rower. And it was a terrific take on her coach kind of this cruel coach who nevertheless drove them to a championship and whether it was all worth it or not. That was terrific. Yeah, Kim Cross, I think, The King of the Tides, is that one? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And yep. the other one you mentioned was, I just had it, the walking one, was A Long Walk's End by William Browning. Yeah. Uh, so all of these, yeah. yeah, all of these pieces are in the 2016 edition of the Best American Sports Writing, uh, which is available now on bookshelves everywhere. And of course, in ebook format as well on iTunes and Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble wherever you get ebooks. You can find Rick. He's on Twitter at Rick T E L A N D E R. You can find him there, and of course, his work appears in the Chicago Sun Times in printed form and on the internet as well. And you can follow at Sun Times underscore Sports uh, to uh, get some links uh, for that as well. Uh, Rick, I really appreciate all the time. Uh, it was really fun. To, I love talking about this book every year and also getting some stories about Eddie Vedder and the Cubs. I uh, appreciated it so much. <laughs> Eddie Vedder and the Cubs, man. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Well, thank you so much. And I just, you know, think that people really ought to, uh, it's just, you know, I don't get any money for this. I mean, I got paid a fee for being the editor, but I think you ought to buy this book. If you want to give a gift to anybody who likes sports, you can pick any one of these stories, and I guarantee you'll be fascinated. I agree. It's a great book. It's a great stocking stuff for every year. Uh, thanks again, Rick. Hopefully we can talk again soon. My pleasure. Take care. See you. All right. I want to thank Rick Tellender for being on the podcast. You can never have enough Eddie Vedder stories. So I want to thank Rick for that. A uh, quick book club update in a second. Holy cow. In a second, we are going to talk to the author of Playing Through the Whistle, Steal Football in American Town, Mr. Scott Price. You can get a copy of this book by emailing me, sportscasters at gmail.com. I still have a couple copies left. Uh, next week on this very program will be the return of Jeff Perlman to talk about his New York Times bestselling book, Brett Favre, Gunslinger, The Remarkable, Improbable, Iconic Life of Brett Favre. It's the second week on the New York Times bestselling list, and it actually went up from number 18 to number 13 this week. And I don't mean like the sports bestselling list. I mean the nonfiction bestselling list. So congratulations to Jeff for that. Uh, also, uh, we are into November. That means cold November rain, and it also means it's officially Joe Buck Month. Lucky bastard, my life, my dad, and the things I'm not allowed to say on TV. Joe Buck is everywhere, and actually tonight I believe he's on The Tonight Show. Uh, so, 
You can catch Joe there. Killed it during the World Series, I thought. Just a great World Series. It's phenomenal. Uh, so those are the books. Again, if you want a copy of Steel Football in an American Town, you can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. We are going to take a break and come back with SL Price. All right, our next guest is from Stanford, Connecticut, and is a graduate of North Carolina. He's a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and is the author of one of the book club books of the month, Playing Through the Whistle, Steal Football in American Town. Man, it's a book we've been talking about for years, and he's making his ninth appearance on the podcast today. A Warren Sportscasters, welcome to SL Price. How are you doing today, Mr. Price? Great. I'm a ninth timer, so, so yep. who's, uh, who's got the record? Well, the, re- the record is Lee Steve, Jenkins. Steve Martin? Lee Jenkins. <laughs> Lee Jenkins. Lee Jenkins. Steve Martin, yeah. He's, and how many has Lee done? He's done 20, I would say. 20. 20, okay. Yeah. Yep, and I believe number two is Wertheim. And how many is it? 16. Yeah, right around there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, it's heady company. People enjoy uh, – I always say that, What? how many times people have been on. I'm not really sure why. I couldn't tell you why I started mm-hmm. doing that. Right. But the, pe- the guests do enjoy it. They like to hear what Well, well it, I, I, I'm stunned to hear that I'm that many. And, and again, it reminds me of the uh, of the whole Saturday Night Live thing, you know, Alec Baldwin, right. yeah. Steve Martin. It's mm-hmm. the, the nine-timers club. So uh, nine, nine is a good number. That's, I, that's, that's yeah. the, before, that means I'm, I've been around the block a little bit. Before long, you'll be in double digits. Yeah. So I mentioned we've been, we've been talking about this book. What year did you write the article? Well, I went to Aliquippa for the first time in 2010, in the fall of 2010. And uh, the article came out. It was the longest piece I'd ever written for Sports Illustrated, and it came out in January of 2011. Which... And so I, 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 you know, I mean, in essence, this book and this subject's been on my, on my mind for six years, and I've probably been going, going at the book hard for, for five years plus. And the, this podcast debuted in January of 2011, and I'm sure we read that article around then. And, and I don't remember exactly when the first time you came on. Probably, I think it was within that first year. So this book has been our radar on our radar for as long as that as well, which is definitely the longest. You and uh, also Jeff Passon's book was on our radar for a long time, but not quite as long. His book, The Army. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think you've asked me. I mean, if I've been on nine times, I think you've asked me about the book probably seven times. Yeah, like, I always wanted enough. You've, you've asked me about it, yeah. So it's finally here. And the cool thing about the book is it kind of, as uh, we mentioned, it's kind of like started as an article. Then there was a really cool video on SI.com uh, right. that you did, and now it's a book. Well, um, I didn't do the video. Right. I, I wish I had that much talent. That 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 video was astounding. It's team and, uh, that uh, I had nothing to do with it. And the frightening and sad thing about writing versus video is they, you know, in five minutes could sum up what, takes me 40 pages to do you know just uh, you know because you have i don't they don't you know, they don't have to describe the town they can just have you know the, the um the chief of police driving through the downtown and it and and just that drive tells you a ton of what i try to get across in prose so it's a it's a it's a it's somewhat disheartening to to see how just how great video can be and <laughs> and impressive at the same time my grandfather is a big reader. He's probably read, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 books. 
And the mm-hmm. funny thing, my brothers and I joke about this, is for as many books as he's read, we've pretty much heard of none of them. Right. You know, like I have no idea where he finds these books or who writes them or what they are, but you can go in his office and look at the books, and I, I don't know any of the books. So I, th- I thought uh, he does enjoy reading history, and I kind of looked at this book in a lot of ways as a history book, and I said, I'm going to give my grandpa a copy and uh, have him read it and see what he thinks. Uh, and he, I, I went uh, trick-or-treating. My daughter and my uh, nephew went trick-or-treating, and we stopped at his house, and the first thing he said to me was, oh, I would have paid you 100 for that book. So, mm. I, so I told him, I said, well, I'll give you the author's PayPal. I said, I'm sure he'll take the 100 Yeah. Yeah, but he, he... He doesn't need to pay. Listen, if <laughs> I had known your subject. grandfather would be interested, I would have come over and read it to him. <laughs> but he was, he was fascinated by the Mike Dicka changing his name story. He said, "You yeah. when you talk to talk to talk to the author. You got to get out more information. You got to ask him about about Dicka's name. So we'll start <laughs> there for Grandpa. Uh, well, uh, uh, I mean, you know, what do you, what do you want to know? He, well, he's, he's, just like many, like many, um, you know, Eastern European guys, uh, you know, families and 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 who came who came over." Um, Either they were forced to change their name to Americanize it when they just went through Ellis Island, or or they did it uh, to um, to be or feel more American, or to feel you know, or to be more accepted, or to make it easier for employers and and you know the the culture to sort of accept them and a lot of them blend in. And and uh, one of Mike's father's uh, brothers, I believe, called him uh, called himself Disco. And uh, and and little Mike Ditka, who was Mike's dad, decided to go with uh, the more sharp-edged, uh, gnarly name of Ditka, which is which is just about perfect. And um, and you know that was that was very much a a practice in uh, you know when when the you know what is it 15 million immigrants were coming through um, Ellis Island at the beginning of uh, the 20th century, the first 15 years. Um, you know, they they were just told, well, your your name's no longer, you know, Dischensky. It's 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 Disco or Ditka or whatever, and and you got to change it. And they just would change it, and and they would accept that change. And entire families' identities would would subtly shift for for generations to come, just just because of that random act of uh, or of confusion by an immigration official. Yeah, my grand my grandfather was fascinated by that. You know, it's amazing these bears guys. They got the, the, the perfect names, like Buckus and Dicka. Like those are the perfect name for those guys. How did they get such well? That's perfect. Names? I, I mean, that's that. I mean, I, let me let me just say this. I mean, one one of the discoveries of this book was I've often thought of, of, of you know of baseball as a nostalgia game for obvious reasons. It's an agrarian. It, it harkens to the agrarian past and and. And obviously, uh, basketball has its sort of Indiana roots and, and Midwest and, and winters, uh, you know, peach baskets, the whole thing. And, and, and there's, a, there's a continuum. And, I, and, and there's always this sort of assumption that football is this modern game. It's, it's the game that, that both, you know, sort of sums up modernity and, and, and speed and force and isn't really quaint. But to me, um, I, I think that, you know, we're talking about the Green Bay Packers, the Meat Packers, the Giants, the, the Steelers. Football harkens back to this working class, immigrant, um, incredibly important chapter of American history. And I think that there's a reason that people like Ditka and, and Butkus and Nitschke all resonate. 
um, with with those of us who consider ourselves football fans, or just about everybody at this point, because because they remind us of those of those guys. And our my grandfather, you know, was Petrovsky, and he worked for Pittsburgh Plate Glass, and they were tough guys, and they were you know shot in a beer guys, and 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 uh, football sort of tickles that nerve in the American sensibility, and um, it's sort of not given credit as 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 much as nostalgia trip as as, as it actually is you know i told i told my grandfather as a kind of a sales pitch that this book was kind of a history book and of course it sells in the amazon sports section but do you agree with my assessment that the heart of it really feels like you know a history book oh it's it's absolutely a cheat i mean this is a this is a, a biography of an american town and football is the through line and, uh, you know, I mean, especially the first hundred pages, I mean, because of my job and because football's in the subtitle, it's always going to be put in the sports section. But, you know, you, the first hundred pages deals far more with labor relations and, and race, you know, race relations and immigration and movement of, of people and the building of this town um, and, and all the, the sort of disparate cultural forces at work. Um, you know, and there is football there and there is sports there. And it picks up speed and, and 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 space as the book goes on, because it's important. But I didn't want to just write a football book. I wanted to write a. a I mean, I what I found about Aliquippa was that it was a far more important town than than just. A, it, it did more than just you know produce great football players and and extraordinarily uh, accomplished football players, even more more so beyond the usual um, bunch that come out of Western Pennsylvania. I mean, this is a town that. That basically produced Americans, minted Americans, and and in so many extreme ways is where America happened. And so I I saw it as an opportunity to try and tell the story of of the country to a certain degree through this small town. I stumbled upon something interesting the other day. I wanted to talk to you about. I was playing around on the sixty minutes app because often what will happen is I'll record sixty minutes, but then a football mm-hmm. game will go like you know thirty minutes into the time, so I don't get to see it all. So I have this 60 Minutes app so I can catch up on stories that were interesting to me that I might have missed. And mm-hmm. I was looking at the archive. This app has an unbelievable archive of stories. And I was looking through the stories from the 80s. I was just curious. And one of the stories that was in there that was really interesting was they were talking about uh, Friday Night Lights and Buzz Bissinger's book. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part of it was the story was really about how mad the people in the town in Texas were at Buzz Bissinger. Right. Uh, they felt kind of lied to. They felt maybe conned a little bit. They felt like uh, there was this – maybe that there was like two stories there that could have been told and that he told only things from the one story. Right. Whatever. They were upset with him. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I was at the time reading a book about an American town and football was in it. Right. And, you know, I thought of you and all the time that you much must have spent there. Um, how – now that the book's been out a month, I'm just curious – how has the reception been in the town? What do they think of the book? Um, well, well, first of all, I've gotten so far nothing but in, an incredibly positive response, both from the locals in Aliquippa, in Beaver County, and in the Pittsburgh area, which I, you know, I fully expected to be some blowback. I think part of there are two things at work. One is is that I wrote the story for Sports Illustrated. And it was a dark story. I mean, it was not a, you know, flowers and rainbow story. This is about a tough town. It was about how drugs and crack 
had sort of hit the place like a typhoon, how the steel mill had gone down, and how the football had endured and, and triumphed e- even amid that. Um, but there were, you know, dark, <laughs> dark renderings in that piece. And, you know, frankly, I wasn't the first to do that. I mean, you know, I, a lot of, I think there were three or four ESPN cameras that came up after me, uh, Cruz, and did, did pieces on, on Alcoba. But, but frankly, the Beaver County Times and the Pittsburgh uh, Post-Gazette and all the locals had done a great job chronicling the life and, 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 and what we think may well be the death of Aliquippa um, over time, well before I got there. Um, and, and the locals knew about it. Not only that, but in, uh, and so, so when I wrote my piece, uh, I, I got one negative comment. Some guy said to me, ah, you know, you could have thrown in some positive stuff about the place. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I did. I thought I did. But to, to write a fair story, I think I wrote, I wrote what I saw. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is, is that I think they knew what was coming. I mean, they right. they already had seen it—a ten thousand word treatment of their town at my hands, and people. When I wrote that story, you know, welcomed me back and were incredibly, um, you, you know, open and giving to me in the years after that article came out, in terms of and knowing that I was going to write a book about their town. And part of it is, I think that that hardship is part of the identity of Aliquippa and part of their pride. Um, they don't like it, but it's true, and they know it's true. And they, um, uh, they, uh, it's part of their identity that they've managed to triumph in spite of those hard things. And the fact is, is that it's an incredibly honest place. And what I mean by that is, Alcoppa has the virtue of being a small town and that everybody knows everybody about every, everybody knows everything about everybody. And Alcoppa has the vice and, and the, the horror of being a small town and the terribleness of it in that everybody knows everything about everybody. Right. And you can't escape. And so, because of the the times were so extreme, thousands thrown out of work. Everybody knew somebody who who's lost a job, lost lost their home, a brother or an uncle or even themselves had, had gone to jail because they fell into dealing drugs or crime or something, to sort of a, in the adjustment period after all that, uh, and uh, or they or they know somebody whose family member was killed or, or you know did some violent crime. It's called the spider web. Uh, Sherman McBride, you know, famously calls it that, in, at least to me, famously in in Aliquippa, and it's 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 everywhere. And as Mike Mianic, the coach, said to me, is like in Aliquippa, we're different. You know, we don't stab you in the back here. We we turn you around and stab you in the chest so you can see us coming. I mean, in some ways, um, I think they wanted their story told honestly and openly because I mean, look, in the time since the book has been written, which was last January. Um, the captain, uh, not the captain, the quarterback of the 2003 Darrell Rivas State Championship team, his two-time Purple Heart winner in, uh, who served in Iraq, his body was found on, on the side of the road in Aliquippa. Uh, DeMonte Brona, who had leukemia and, and seemed to be in remission, has now had a recurrence of leukemia, and it's come back. A defensive back killed himself over the summer. And on the day the book was published, two Aliquippa football players were arrested for murder. So if people, you know, if there was a sentiment of, well, he's telling the dark side of this town, uh, there's far more of a sentiment of he's telling it like it is. And, he's, and, he, and, and I hope they understand, I think they understand that I have an incredible respect for the pain and the torment that this, 
this town has gone through because I think Aliquippa is extremely important, and I think it's a, a special place that is a, in many ways a, um, uh, a canary in the coal mine for the country. It, it's, it, there, there's, it's, it's a place that's showing us what has happened to this country. And all the forces, by the way, that have been cut loose in this election were cut loose when places like Aliquippa, who I think, what I think is a place that is the most extreme version of it, um, had their industry shut down and an entire class of, of proud Americans was thrown off the American ladder to, of success. And, and that, those issues haven't been addressed since. And, and they're coming home to roost. And, and whether or not Trump wins or loses, that force is out there, and those, and those issues are, are still going to have to be dealt with. And so I just, in, in, in essence, I think that the people there knew that I, I had a lot of respect for that town and, and, and really, in many ways, love what I found there, good and bad. Um, and, and I think they knew I had the respect for it. And I think in some ways, some of them wouldn't have respected me if I hadn't told the story as straight as I did, because they tell the story uh, straight every time you talk to them. The openness there is extraordinary. You know, there's a bit of a brotherhood between Buffalo and Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Detroit, probably. Uh, these kind of American cities that were based on industry, and then that industry isn't there anymore, and how do we adjust? And as I was Baltimore, reading, too. Yeah, and as I was reading the book, yeah, of course, Baltimore's story told brilliantly in The Wire in season two. Uh as I was reading it, I was thinking about Buffalo a little bit and thinking about how uh, South Buffalo, which isn't really a place necessarily. Uh, I mean, it's not on a map. There's no like South Buffalo on the map, but it's the, it's a state of mind, though. Right. Uh, it's absolutely. And you were there. You wrote a, an article about Pat Kane uh, in SI, and it's similar in the sense that you know uh, many of the people who worked in the the steel uh, steel mills in Buffalo either were leave their, usually lived in Lackawanna or South Buffalo. It's kind of the, almost the same area right there off McKinley. And South Buffalo has this group of hockey players, um, first-round picks, first-overall picks in Pat Kane's uh, sense, women's uh, Olympian hockey players, just all kinds of great hockey players come from that area in South Buffalo. And now uh, you wrote about uh, El Equipo, which has the, this long line of football players from Mike Dicka to Jonathan Baldwin, and it'll go on beyond that. And i got to imagine there's different parts of America where this is happening this like cluster of athletes who defy the standard statistics of right you know and it's it's really fascinating and and you told the story really well in Alquipa and I I knew that you had been to South Buffalo and I wonder if you noticed the parallel or the parallel oh, to other places in in the United States from Alquipa Absolutely I mean look I I I I you know the whole Red Sox and and uh and uh, Chicago Cubs thing, yeah. It's like to me, you know, the the, the pain, quote unquote, of upper middle class people moaning about their team not not winning for so many years, uh, is a joke to me. Like, you know, Chicago doesn't win; it's still a great city. Boston doesn't win; it still has 115 universities and and a constant influx of young people. It's still a great city. Buffalo needs to win. Buffalo needs the Sabres to win, okay? Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, that's the team I would like to see win. That's the town that has a curse that needs to be lifted. Cleveland needs championships far more than Chicago does. I don't care how, who's got the longer streak. And it's because these are towns that have suffered greatly economically and people who were incredibly devoted to their, te- to their teams, not as a, 
as a hobby or as a pastime, but it's a way of life. I mean, Steelers Nation, to me, is the most legitimate quote-unquote nation because these people were really kicked out of, a, of the city. They didn't want to be uh, basically expunged from because all their jobs went away and they had to spread out all over the country to Arizona and all these other places because they had to find work. And they still love the Steelers and they still love Pittsburgh and they would much rather be living there and working there. And so to me, that's, uh, there's something that is it's far more profound about those cities and their, their devotion to their sports teams. Um, and there's no dilettante, no bandwagon jumping about it. This is, this is their team. This is their town. This is their way of life. And it was their way of work. And work is so important to men, and it's understated, you know, because we're not allowed to say such things. But basically, especially to men, the, 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 this, this book is a book about the rise of dignified work and then the, the wrenching of it and taking it away to an entire class of human beings who are incredibly proud, incredibly competitive, and incredibly tough. And outside of work, they're, they're interested in, in, in their families and having a shot and a beer and cheering on their team because that team reflected their values and their way of life. And so to me, there is something absolutely far more profound and attractive about it when those teams win and those cities win because there is an element of loss there. It isn't, it isn't a bauble. It isn't, a, it isn't just another luxury entertainment option. This is, this is what these cities are about. It has died in the soul of these, of these cities. And um, so, yeah, I absolutely felt the parallel when I was doing Pat Kane and, and spending time in South, uh, South Buffalo. Um, I spent a lot of time with, with the cops there. Um, uh, you know, these are ex-athletes. Well, the same, a lot of them, and that's the same in Aliquippa. A lot of these guys turned to law enforcement right. when their athletic careers were over with. And so, um, yeah. And, and, and there's something about that that resonates with me, um, and, and, and I, um, I find it incredibly appealing, and, and like I said, honest. There's something honest about it. It's very pure. The Sportscaster here with S.L. Price, whose book, Playing Through the Whistle, Steel Football in American Town, is available wherever books are sold, ebook formats, and, of course, hardcover. It's a beautiful-looking book. Sticks out in the bookstore. You can see it uh, as soon as you walk in the place, it seems like. Uh, we've been talking about this book for a while. We only have a few more minutes already. I should have cut you off a few times and jumped in a little bit. Sorry. That's all Sorry, right. Sorry, can't, 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 yeah, get rolling. I enjoy but, the passion, yeah. so I, I kind of stayed yeah. out of the way. But, you know, it was interesting. I was reading some different things, and the Revis stuff I thought was really interesting and really spoke to Al Quipa. This kid who didn't even want to play football, really. He was a basketball kid. You know, he just he wanted to play basketball, and the coach <laughs> – the coach almost slow conned him into joining, and he also had options. He could have went to Maryland and played in Maryland, but it's almost like he was destined to be a football El Equipo player despite all the other aspects of life that could have pulled him to Maryland or pulled him to basketball or whatever. Um, I thought Rivas was an especially interesting character in the book. What did you think about Rivas? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, and Rivas wasn't alone. There's a lot of these kids were growing up, and they loved basketball more. And 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 by the way, Alcorn was a very good basketball. They they won the state title last year. I mean, they're they're a good basketball school as well. Uh, it's just that football has sort of been the the heart of that passion for a long time. But Revis uh, and others uh, 
really loved basketball more as kids, but if you're an athlete in Aliquippa, and you know Rivas was a spectacular athlete all the way around, um, you're, you sort of have no choice. And um, and if you're an Aliquippa kid, and your and your uncle is is Sean Gilbert, and um, and Ty Law moved into your house after you moved out. I'm sorry. If you uh, no, I'm sorry. Let me let me flip that. I believe that they they moved into Ty Law's house. Right. Um, um, I mean. The connections there are so deep and and so passionate that uh, eventually you're just gonna you, you have to play football. <laughs> you just have to play it. And 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 Rebus, you know, look, he's a, he, he you know he's, he's he's made an incredible amount of money, and he's and he's um, you know one of the greats in the game. Uh, and I don't think he regrets it. Um, and I don't. I know he doesn't regret having gone back to Aliquippa. I mean. You know, he he told me he has he has a real problem with, and this is sort of the 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 peril of success. I mean, or the paradox of success. You know, the 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 forces and the and the drive that you got from hard circumstances. You don't want your kids to replicate, but uh, and so he doesn't want his kids to grow up in Aliquippa. But we'd love to see them play at Aliquippa High somehow without the danger. But of course, the danger and the the bad news there is part of what makes the football there so enticing and spectacular when it wins. Let's kind of end on this. I, I could do this all day. Maybe we'll have to do it again. But Playing Through the Whistle is the book Steal Football in American Town uh, by S.L. Price. I'd make a great Christmas gift. Um, when you go back to Aliquippa in five years or seven years or ten years, what do you expect to see there? Wow. Uh, I mean, I, un- unless something happens, unless uh, some sort of form of, of industry or um, I would even say a school or something, something swoops in to fill the vacuum, I can only imagine increased shrinkage. I mean, the town is down to 9,500, the population, you know, the, the trends are all downward, and y- you just got to expect that Aliquippa is going to merge with another high school at some point. It just, it just makes too much sense um, geographically and economically, uh, if not spiritually. And, um, you know, it's either Hopewell or, or, or Ambridge for me. So I, I think they'll, they'd be more welcomed in Ambridge. And I think they're, they're more, uh, you know, there's a more of a kinship between those two towns. You know, they're separated by the river. But um, I, I just, uh, it, 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 it just, it's hard for me to envision a reversal uh, unless there's some sort of uh, large-scale employment uh, vehicle that suddenly moves into town or the area. So you kind of expect more of the same. Do you still ex- expect there to be NFL football players? Like, is that what? I, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the. I mean, look. Here, here's the deal. I, I expected Aliquippa to. They, they're a class A school. Had been playing up at two A for for years. This. So then, they decide before this season to to move up to three A. And the litany of, of tragedies that has hit this place since I've since last January is almost breathtaking. I mean, it's it's unbelievable what this school and this team has gone through in the last ten months. So I've been predicting, oh well, they're I mean, and they moved up to three A. Oh, they're going to have a much tougher time. Well, they 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 had a, a, a two big losses, but they're eight and two. They went to the playoffs, seeded number one, and they won their first playoff game, forty two to seven. So, you know, they're playing again this week, and 
uh, I've learned not to bet against them. And, they, and I keep thinking in my time over the five years that I was writing, I kept thinking, well, okay, well, that's the end. That senior class will be the last one that sort of spits out another D1 player, and they keep churning them out. They, they, they keep having kids. There's only three dozen boys in the senior, senior class, and at least you know, two or three are getting scholarships to you know, West Virginia or Pitt or elsewhere. So yeah, uh, until it stops, I'm just uh, I've, I've I've given up on trying to predict uh, a weakening of that program because they 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 keep on keeping on in spite of just about everything the world throws at them. You can find Mr. Price on Twitter at by SL Price, and you can find his words, of course, weekly in the pages of Sports Illustrated. And the book "Playing Through the Whistle: Steel Football in an American Town" is available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of it. I really enjoyed uh, reading it and promoting it and talking with you about it. It was really an honor for us. Well, it's an honor for me to have people so devoted to reading it. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right, I want to thank... Sal Price for making his ninth appearance on the show. Dude's a legend, one of the best sports writers to ever be on the Sportscasters. Don't forget you can hear this episode of the Sportscasters and all of our episodes at www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also head up to our website, www.sports-casters.com. We'll have a link to the SoundCloud there. You can also find our episodes on the internet and podcast catchers like iTunes and Stitcher and Downcast. And you can email the show at www. No, that's not an email address. You can email the show at thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, at Dazer with three R's, and at Don Lake Sports. Also, you can check out the Lonely End of the Ring podcast, www.sportscasters.com soundcloud.com slash lonely rink pod and it's twitter as well at lonely rink pod this week's episode features darren mccarty four-time stanley cup champion all right one last thing i know you had something planned Anth, but i think i got to jump in and ask you to talk about something else so all right, let's hear it i noticed this week that uh the ushl uh, has now an like a national signing day uh, where players across the league uh, make their commitments. And I know when you were in the USHL, I don't think they did this, uh, but you did, in fact, make a commitment. Uh, so I thought maybe it would be cool for you to talk about that. Yeah. First, yeah, I mean, the uh, first thing is, well, I'm jealous of that league right now. I mean, it's so much more developed than when I played. I mean, the team I played, I played in Sioux Falls for most of my two years there, and now they're selling it out with like 11,000 people a night. So first of all, I'm just jealous. Yeah, of, they have a brand new rink. The, yeah, a brand new rink. The league's grown. You know, it's definitely more, you know, on Twitter there's more videos of goals. It'd be just be, I bet it's a cool time to play in that league right now if you're a player. But, yeah, the whole commitment thing was, was, was wild. I mean, you obviously know, but I didn't really know if I was going to play after high school. And kind of ended up making the team not drafted, just through trial camps, and and then a couple months after that, I'm getting you know calls from a bunch of Div- Division One schools. So it's just kind of like a a huge whirlwind. So that that was the first thing that kind of I always remember of just you know just kind of being bombarded with that 
that decision. I didn't think I'd have to make it that soon, but um, yeah, when it when it finally came to Yale, um, kind of happened very quick. I, I had discussions with them a little bit. Um, They're one of the very first schools, really, right? Yeah, like initially, just kind of you know a little a little hello, I guess, and then you know a few months later, it kind of like fell off my radar. When I was talking to other schools, but. Um, and that summer after, after my first year, I went to my, my, my good buddies from that first year, um, and juniors, his, his lake house up in Wisconsin and ended up meeting a, a future teammate, Josh Balsh. Was that um, Coda or Limblad? Limblad, right? It was Limblad. Okay. Yeah. So he played at Dartmouth and his, his best friend from Chicago was a kid who just finished his first year at Yale. So hung out with him that weekend and he kind of told me about you know what was going on there and you know how much fun it was and and how good the team and the program is is getting um and just kind of convinced me i mean obviously it was a cool name and obviously a great school to go to um but just to hear uh, what he had to say about it and just kind of something you won't really learn just going out of visit or you know just from just perception so that next week, when I got back to Buffalo, I called the coach, and I was like, yeah, I want to come out and see the place. <laughs> Me and Dad drove out there, literally on a Saturday morning, toured around campus, you know, met with coaches, um, obviously had a discussion with the coach, committed there, right there, and the one thing I always remember is when we left the uh, coach's office to get back in the car and drive to Buffalo, same day, Dad drove like 12 hours in that same day, but... Um, He's an animal <laughs> like that, though. He loves it. Oh, my God. There's nothing I'd rather do than drive 12 hours in one day. He loves it. Um, So he walks out of, like, the tunnel and, like, takes three steps and does, like, one of those, like, running, like, tap your heels thing. (laughs) And, like, I've never seen him move, like, that quick or with that much agility. He was just so happy. So that that really made me happy. And then, obviously, making the calls to to you and other, you know, loved ones and friends. It was just a really cool moment once you do make that decision and – and um you know kind of put that behind you because it is a pretty stressful time and you know you're always second guessing yourself but it was it was obviously a a really good decision and i wouldn't have changed it or gone anywhere else if i could i do have a pet peeve uh for kids these days every single person who commits now does the same tweet they'll be like so the token whatever at player whatever and he'll say i'm proud to announce that i committed to play hockey at yale I want to thank everyone who's helped me along the way. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just... <laughs> yeah, I guess that's their first step in the cliche answers they'll be giving for the next four hour, four years or Ugh. even more after that. Yeah. So, so one interesting thing, did you think... So when you were going to your schools, obviously RPI tried really hard. I don't think you ever really had in your mind you might commit there. Mm-mm. But you did go on an official visit to BC, and I think you did think you were about to commit there, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the coach came out and saw me play like a week before. I'd been talking to them for, you know, a few weeks before that, and that was always, you know, my one seed really was BC. You know, I can't really think of a school that would rank higher than that, you know, initially. So to actually have something, you know, or an opportunity to go there, it was, you know, I was very eggs in the basket um you know he came and saw me play and then the next week i flew out to bc after i think we had a road trip in chicago i just flew right from chicago there and visited and you know that when i got back to sioux falls i was like you know yeah i think that's the one like i think the next call is going to be them offering me <laughs> and the next call was him saying they're not going to offer me so it was uh it was definitely a, like kind of a wake-up call and and just you know i guess a lot of motivation 
And then uh, you never really thought about Michigan State, right? I mean, I know they offered. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I did. There's, I guess, it was just good timing that El came along when they did. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably pretty close to Michigan State. I would say that was the one I would probably have gone to if I didn't go to El. Um, just, I mean, there's Buffalo connections there. You know, Buffalo guys have won national championships there. So, and and I kind of, you know, really liked when I went there. It was it was obviously a pretty good hockey school and and obviously a, a big school and you know something to more of a college experience, I'd say, obviously. You wouldn't um, have won the national championship there, but you would have played at the big house. So I guess that would have been cool. Yeah, no, looking back, I mean, it's crazy the, the, the directions those two programs that I was choosing, you know, between went. So I definitely made the right decision, um, you know, in that sense. All right, one last thing for me today. Man, the World Series ends and sports goes into a bit of a lull. Um. The NFL is just kind of in the middle of a maybe the worst season it's had in a long time. I know that's the perception and that's the attitude. It's been fine for me. I, I don't know. I still turn my team on at 1 o'clock every Sunday. and I mean, it's the most stressful, enjoyable, exciting three hours of the week for me. So, I don't know. I guess I'm not as down on it as some people. I mean, I'm not all that upset that I don't have to sit around and watch Baltimore and Cleveland this weekend. I mean, it's just not that big of a deal to me that that game's on tonight. And take or, we- take or leave the game, and it doesn't really upset me one way or another. But when you're watching baseball every night like that and the intensity of the games, and then it ends and you're like in the second week of the hockey season, the first week of the basketball season, the middle of the football season, you know, college football hasn't quite reached its uh final weeks just yet and it's like wow what a lull i mean when we were putting together three things for the show and i'm thinking like what the hell are we going to talk about really you know because we've been starting three things for the last five weeks with baseball playoffs and super intense action and stuff and it's just like wow like the bottom fell out of sports it seems like uh oh before we end the show i do have to do a couple things one i save this for the end one i wanted to thank a friend um uh, I always mean to do this and I never get around to it for whatever reason, but I want to thank my friend Sean, who's a really good listener of the show. And every time I see him, uh, he talks to me about whatever he heard last on the show. And it's just really cool of him. And I appreciate the support. And I figured I'd uh, say something to him. Also, I have a plug that I told another friend I'd read. So I'm going to read this now. You ready, Anth? Let's hear it. Take notes. All right. Armchair quarterbacks, your Sundays are about to get even better. A new free live in-game interactive app is about to hit the Apple and Android markets. FireFan will bring the game into your home like never before. You can now play along as you watch your favorite teams compete, play in leagues amongst friends, against your favorite celebrities, or by yourself. All you have to do is pre-register at www.firefan.com and use code BURNSY14, B-Y-R-N-S-I-E-14, and you will receive special perks when the game is released this month. Uh, so I wanted to read that plug there. Ah, and I guess that's just about it. I mean, kind of starting a new era here on the show with SoundCloud. We're excited about that. I mean, looking back at all the seasons, it's been pretty cool to talk to people like Artie Lang and Joe Buck and Mike Tirico. I got to talk to Mike Tirico about Steve Gleason's punt. It's one of the mm. best sports moments of my life, top three. You know, I got to talk to Joe Buck about calling World Series home runs and the Saints winning the NFC, um, things like that. Got to interview Deuce McAllister and Dave Justice and 
Frank DeFord and meet really cool writers like Jeff Perlman and Jeff Passan and S.L. Price and uh, all the other guys have been really good to Don and I and uh, Anthony when he co-hosts and whoever else has been a part of the show. I want to thank everyone uh, for a great, I guess, first five years. We still have probably another month left in this season. I'm sure we'll get probably four or five more episodes before the start of season seven. So we'll get to write about 40. And uh, then season seven will start. I don't think we have any plans of stopping anytime soon. We still enjoy doing the show. So thanks to everyone who's uh, listened all these years and uh, look forward to the rest of the SoundCloud era. (laughs) 